0: I invite you to open your Bibles to Job 25 and 26. We're gonna look at two chapters. In the book of Job, Job 25 and 26, I really desperately wanted to preach on something that no one has ever preached on. Um, You can't preach the New Testament at Grace Church. There's a guy well-known for it, so we all kind of just live in the Old Testament. Um, not, Not under the laws and customs, per se, but. Uh, we, we do spend a lot of time there, and I've been studying the book of Job lately, and I wanted to, I wanted to bring these two chapters to your attention to help us understand uh, the topic that the Lord has, has placed on my heart as a burden. I want to talk to you actually about theological balance, theological balance. So put that word in your head, and let's, more importantly, look to the word Of the living God, Job chapter 25, starting in verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered, Dominion and awe belong to him who establishes peace in his heights. Is there any number to his troops, and upon whom does his light not rise? How then? Can a man be just with God? Or how can he be clean who is born of woman? If even the moon has no brightness and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm? And then Job responded, what a help you are to the weak. (laughs) How you have saved the arm without strength. What counsel you have given to one without wisdom. What helpful insight you have abundantly provided. To whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit was expressed through you? The departed spirits tremble under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abdon has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. He wraps up the waters in his clouds, and the cloud does not burst under them. He obscures the face of the full moon and spreads his cloud over it. He has inscribed a circle on the surface of the waters, At the boundary of light and darkness, the pillars of heaven tremble and are amazed at his rebuke. He quieted the sea with his power, and by his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his breath, the heavens are cleared. His hand has pierced the fleeing serpent. Behold, these are the fringes of his ways. And how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? This is the very word of the living God. Balance, balance is something we normally associate with gymnastics. And from the look of you, you don't look familiar with gymnastics, pastors. (laughs) Neither am I. Or we think of a balanced meal. Eat your vegetables. Or other illustrations less fortunate of balance. It was just three days ago in this fair city of Los Angeles that the guru, Oprah Winfrey, was doing a presentation some kind of speaking tour she has going called Vision 2020. Uh, She stole that name from John MacArthur. (laughs) And she was talking about how important it was to have balance in her life and one of the keys to her success. It's not the billions of dollars, it's the balance in her life. And she talks about balance, and as she's speaking about balance on stage, she literally topples to the ground. (laughs) The cruel and merciless internet Uh, Did not miss the irony and wait till after to Google it, but she's okay. I know you were concerned. (laughs) Balance. It's actually been eyed with suspicion and rightly so by wise Christians. In his important book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer refers to balance as a horrible self-conscious word. And we understand that because we follow the Lord Jesus Christ and it would be very hard to mistake his claims of discipleship and his demands on our lives to look like anything that vaguely resembles balance, right? The caution toward balance is held in an effort to make sure we find no more balance than the Lord who himself is radical and extreme, It's Jesus who said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For better, if you lose one of your members and your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus, how about a little balance there? I mean, many would like to moderate him, but there's no balance in his call to discipleship. But what about in theology? Pastor, all of us, are theologians whether we're able theologians or not it depends on how much we've applied ourselves to understand the word of god but we all have thoughts of god they may not be biblical or in any way tied to the historic stands of christian doctrine but we all especially at a conference like this aspire to be apt and able and wise theologians But so often, sometimes our thoughts of God can lack balance. And that's what I have in view. And I think that's what we're being shown in Job 25 and 26. There is different ways to approach the topic of theological balance. And I think the most illustrative and pastoral way will be to look at the book of Job. And this section Adequately represents what consists to be the most, uh, the majority part of the book of Job. We're all familiar with the opening of the story. We've all heard sermons on and preached about Job's breathtaking losses, about that backroom deal in heaven that Job was not privileged to. And for the most part, the middle section of Job remains unexplored. We usually think of it like, well, here's a bunch of bad advice. I think we'll maybe not go through it line by line. But when we neglect the book of Job, especially the main part of the book of Job, we miss out on what God has for us here. And I think that we have far more in common with these counselors than we realize. I think that their worldviews are more common to us than we would think as, as modern people, but especially the way they think about God. Sometimes they lack precision and care, and more often than not, the counselors, Bildad included, are not theologically that wrong. It's just they've taken their theology and misapplied it to poor Job, The theological balance that we need in ministry, if we're going to minister to those in pain and suffering loss, who are questioning the providence of God, this careful, precise theological balance sometimes manifests itself in precision, in content, and sometimes in how we deliver the truth about God to hurting people, and it's a lesson for every pastor who studies the book of Job. I am not calling for Moderation in your devotion to Christ. When I talk about theological balance, uh, there are times when it's unhelpful. We don't want to balance out the perspicuity of Scripture that we heard about this morning with uh, the cloudiness of Scripture. That, that is not a balance. We don't want to balance out God's glory and our glory or salvation by Christ alone and not by Christ alone. That is not balance. That's off balance. But a well balanced understanding of the things of God, a balance that's not dictated by Our own good judgment, but true theological balance comes only from letting the whole counsel of God counsel us. We want to be balanced where the scripture is balanced. It comes from listening to all of scripture, not just our favorite parts or theological hobby horses. Theological balance necessitates a willingness to let the Bible speak in all its entirety and its fullness. So whether it's from a neglect of historical theology and lessons we should have learned, or a study of one topic to the neglect of another, or a failure to hold truths intention or imprecision theologically, all can lead to theological imbalance. And that brings us to Reverend Bildad, right here in the middle of the book of Job. So much to learn from these friends and It's such a book, a masterpiece, really, of divine inspiration, full of lessons for pastors. It shows us, the book of Job, how to reorient our lives regarding suffering. It reminds us that Instagram is a liar, that life isn't like that. The book of Job reminds us that the worth of God is not dependent on our comfort and blessing, The book of Job shows us that suffering is a a holy gift from God, and the book of Job tells us that we don't always get the answers that we seek. It confronts and informs various worldviews, naturalism especially. It even shows us the superiority of silence as it shows us that all these words that all these friends spoke were not effective, Instead, when they came and sat with Job, they were at their best. But more than anything, it shows us that theology can be close but far off. Theology can be even decent but poorly applied. And adhering to a misapplied and rigid theological system can be dangerous if you work with souls. And so here is Job, this case study in human perseverance and patience, in the compassion and mercy of God. And he's at the end of his rope. Job 25 is the final speech from the friends of Job. The introduction that we all know and then speeches that run for 41 chapters and a conclusion, an epilogue at the end, all consists of these interviews. First, the book opens with Yahweh interviewing Satan and then a dialogue with Job and his friends and then two interviews of Yahweh with Job. And within those dialogues with the friends, there's four different rounds of speeches. Job makes an opening statement, his lament in chapter 3. There's a debate in three cycles, chapter 4 through 27. Job's closing statement begins in really this verse as he answers and then concludes a, a final statement in chapter nine through or chapter 29 through chapter 31. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar punctuated by the responses of Job, and their message in a nutshell is, Job, you're being punished. Job, you you did something wrong, and the tragedy that's happened in your life is because of God's displeasure with you. And these unwitting helpers, these miserable counselors and terrible physicians are acting as examples to us of how not to counsel the suffering, and they're full of theology, but they're so off-balanced. They become obsessed with a a neat and tidy system of theology that they do not allow God himself to dictate, and it earns them at the end of the book a rebuke from God himself. These men have come to tightly held conclusions, rules without exceptions, and mostly deferred and derived from their own thinking, natural theology, their observations about how life on this planet works, and these counselors, even when they're right, they're constantly misapplying their findings to Job. And as you move through these speeches, they become more and more caustic towards this suffering man. I mean, you know where he is. He's completely devastated. He has lost his precious children, all 10 of them. The graves are still fresh. His wife has turned her back on him to his pain. His friends have have piled on in, in counsel his Economic status has been completely devastated, and now his health continues to erode. Job has lost everything precious to him, bereft of his children, his possessions, his servants, and even he his health. Job was a man wrecked by poverty and plague, all by the permission of the Lord of hosts. The sovereign God of this universe is using Job as a case study to the devil to show him that his worship is not based on the good things God has provided for Job, but it's on the basis of who God is. And chapter 25 is the last you'll hear from these friends, these unwitting counselors. It's the definitive termination of their theological imbalance Christopher Ashe says it this way, they stutter into silence, beaten by Job's perseverance, integrity, and faith. And as we zoom in on chapters 25 and 26, we really get a glimpse of the doctrine of God and his greatness and his glory and also a look at the doctrine of man and I hope that we're able to compare the way we think about God especially as we seek to comfort those who suffer and minister to those who suffer which will be the majority work of your time in pastoral ministry as we've come to see the older we get, the more we and those we love suffer. And how we think about God in those times and how our people think about God and about themselves really does consist of so much of their theology. And so what should it look like? Let's look at this in two parts. Chapter 25, part one. Chapter 26, part two. We'll do chapter 25 under the heading Dismantling Theological Imbalance. Dismantling theological imbalance. I read it to you already, but let me explain some things about this text that may not be obvious on the surface. It certainly has the ring of credibility to it, doesn't it? I mean, it does sound like big God theology. The opening line shows us that dominion and awe belong to him. In fact, one commentator says of chapter 25, it's reverent but irrelevant. But it's not just irrelevant. A closer examination of what Bildad says about God will show us that one of the ways we can lack theological balance is to not be precise in the way that we communicate about God. I mean, whole heresies have been built in the history of Christianity on the basis of prepositions. And that's what's happening here in Bildad's speech. It sounds like a perfectly good song to sing. In fact, it sounds better than most church music, doesn't it? Dominion and fear belong to him. Who establishes peace in the heights? Is there any number to his troops? And upon whom does his light not rise? The moon, verse five, has no brightness, and the stars are not pure in his sight. How much less man, that maggot, the son of man, that worm. But a closer examination of verse two exposes something. English translations show that first phrase along the lines of dominion and fear are with him in almost every English Bible translation. It's adequate, but it misses something important there. That word dominion's a common word in the Old Testament. It's, it's all over the place. But it only occurs two times in the fill, infinitive, absolute. This little... Unique occurrence of verbal nature changes everything. This word, because it's different than all the other occurrences, save two, shows us how Bildad thought about the dominion, the rulership, the sovereignty of God. God, in Bildad's construction, is one who asserts dominion, one who is a ruler but it's this kind of a ruler. I'll show you the other place it's used, the other places it's used. Look at Psalm 8 verse 7. Psalm 8 verse 7. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field. Remember this song about the majesty of God and the place of man. He's talking about creation in verse 7, all sheep and oxen and Beasts of the field and birds of the heavens and fish of the sea. Whatever passes through the paths of the sea. You see, the dominion being described here in verses five and six is the way that a person would rule over livestock. It's total authority. Now granted, most people today have a bad view of animals. They carry them in their purses and things like that. But in a biblical conception, man was to rule over the animals, not the other way around. And that's how Bildad thinks about the sovereignty of God. To Bildad, God is tyrannical, he's despotic, and he demonstrates his indisputable control over people's lives. Do you see how that's a slight and subtle difference? The other occurrence is similar. Daniel eleven thirty nine. 39, you can jot it down. It's talking about a despot. The next word is is equally telling. It's an ominous word. It's the word terror. This dread of the wrath of God and displeasure of God is how Bildad, first and foremost, thinks about God, especially as God relates to Job. There's authority with God, there's terror with God, and there is a sense in which that is true, but not this sense. You see, this small difference exposes that this counselor is a worthless counselor because he doesn't really understand what God is like. His God is a God that grinds people down, a God without benevolence, a God without compassion, a God that is mostly described as being in control and terrifying. To Bildad, God is not a good God, He's mechanical deterministic, probably a lot more like the God of Islam. Listen to me. We love the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, don't we? Spurgeon says it's the pillow on which the believer places his head at night. We are hopeless and lost if God is not sovereign. And if you preach a totally sovereign God to your people, that he's in complete control of every square inch of their lives, but you do not also preach that he is good, you've preached to them a false God. And pastor, you might be off balance, like Reverend Bildad is. And though he sounds good, you can see there's a there's a chiastic shape to these six verses. In other words, verse two matches verse six. One is a description of God and his awesomeness, and the parallel statement in verse six is a description of man and his lowliness. How much less man, that maggot, and the son of man, that worm. Now there is a place for worm theology. God calls Israel a worm in the book of Isaiah. In the Psalms, at one point, man, David describes himself as a worm. Maggot, on the other hand, might be going too far. I mean, we just read Psalm 8, and I think it's a helpful corrective for us. It begins by talking about the majesty of the Lord, his name in all the earth, displaying a splendor above the heavens, But then at the center of Psalm 8, it reminds us that when the psalmist David considers the work of God's hands, the work of his fingers, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands and then concludes again with a thought of God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Bildad sees Job like a maggot compared to the glory of God, but that isn't a proper, balanced understanding of anthropology, is it? Human beings are actually glorious creatures. Not because something in us, but because something in God. That's the Imago Dei. That's why we matter. That's where our value is found, These counselors have been attempting to box God in for 20-something chapters now, saying he always operates by way of retribution, there's got to be something wrong in a person's life for their life to go this badly, this must be the hand of God's judgment, but we know it's not true in the case of Job. And so when Bildad turns his focus to man, he's equally skewed. He uses the immensity of God as a magnifying glass to see what man should be in comparison with God. That... This creation of God is so despicable, so low, And so exposing God's all-seeing holiness in verse three, and then reminding us that nothing is as pure as God, nothing is as holy as God in verse five, even if the moon has no brightness and the stars are not even pure compared with God, the chiasm points towards verse four being the very center and expose of Bildad's imbalanced theology, a theology that at A superficial glance kind of looks like Reformed soteriology. It kind of looks like Calvinism. But I'll show you why it's not. His question in verse 4 exposes the whole system. How then can a man, Hebrew word enosh, used when it's thought of men's frailty and weakness, how can a man be just With God? Or how can he be clean or pure who is born of a woman? This universal statement about mankind exposes what Bildad really thinks of his God. He thinks God is so big and so mighty and so other and so holy and so sovereign that he could never forgive. Forgiveness was necessary. And it's necessary in the book of Job. The the whole story opens with Job offering sacrifices. What does that tell us about Job? That means that Job understood that he needed forgiveness. Job is claiming not to be perfect, but to be innocent. And there's a significant difference there. Job isn't saying that he has never sinned, that he isn't a worm of a man. He knows he is. That's why he offered sacrifices to Yahweh in faith. It's why he was in right standing with God, and it's why his conscience was clear to proclaim his innocence throughout this entire book. But in Bildad's corrupted, imbalanced, and wrong theology, he is saying that there's a conception of God where God is so high and so far outside of us and and so big in his understanding that he is not able and not willing to save. A God who is not compassionate. Compassionate. So we might say that Bildad has too high of a view of God and too low of a view of man. But I don't think so. Certainly his view of man could use some work. And you could read him Psalm 8 or tell him that great quote from C.S. Lewis about how you've never met an ordinary person. There are no mere mortals. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal. Their life to ours is the life of a gnat, but immortals are whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors are everlasting splendors. This does not mean we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be of the kind which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. Our charity must be real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. That's a more balanced view of man. He's redeemable, at least. He's made in the image and likeness of God. And that's certainly not how Bildad thinks of Job. Bildad lacks basic compassion. He's demonstrated that already. He's failed in his over analysis of Job and his short. Uh, sh- shortfall in theology to acknowledge that Job is indeed a glorious creature made in God's likeness and image worthy of human compassion. He sees the sin of man as the only way to define his anthropology. And I do have concerns that there could be counselors like this, a counselor who always thinks it's about sin. There's a hidden sin here. We got to figure out what the sin is. Sin, 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 sin. You could think you could build ad somebody. Or you have such an elevated view of human depravity and it should be elevated, but it's so elevated that you don't trust anyone. Y'all are gonna steal my wallet and give me the coronavirus. <laughs> you know, I was a germaphobe already. So everybody just welcome to my world. This is, this is how I've always lived. And people think like that. That person must be up to all sorts of evil. And Christian, you should think like that about your own heart. You should look at others and think what what glorious potential these creatures have made in the likeness and image of God. It's easy to hold your baby and go, uh, you know, the Calvinist line, what do we say? Diapers, uh, vipers in diapers. Diapers and vipers is totally different. But to also look at a baby and say, this baby was made in the image and likeness of God with the capacity to worship him for all eternity. I mean, that's biblical and that's balanced. But that's just the way I'd fix Bildad. That's not how Job does it. It's easy to dismantle and pick apart Bildad's reverent but irrelevant presentation let's look at chapter 26. Chapter 25, dismantling theological imbalance. Chapter 26, discovering theological balance. And it's surprising to me how Job handles him. It's surprising to me that in his pain and in his suffering and in his loss and in his broken, hurting, exquisite experience on the trash heap as his body is lacerated with sores and the, the pottery shards that he's trying to open these sores up with and the frustration of listening to all this human babbling. It is amazing to me that Job is still a theologian par excellence. He's not perfect And Alehu will confront him appropriately later. But Job here presents what one author calls the greatest recital in the whole book excelled only by the Lord's speeches. Job balances out Bildad. And he does it in an unguessable way. But first verses one through four. You already entertained Job with a laugh. He appreciated that from heaven, I'm sure. Verses one through four are just pure, utter sarcasm. And pastor, if you love sarcasm, now you have a proof text. (laughs) Bildad receives the serrated edge of Job's pain. And you know what? He deserves it. There's a play on words here. It's the word saved, the word wisdom, the word insight in verse 3, and the word words, all related words, all Job saying, thanks for that. Thanks for nothing. That was helpful, not helpful. It's that kind of a statement that Job makes, a, a thanks for nothing Who do you think you are? It's the perfect response, not just to Bildad's speech, but to all the speeches that have gone before. He's saying that you haven't saved the one who's hurting. You haven't applied any real wisdom here. There's been no insight, and there have not been words that had any authority to them. It was ineffective, and it was powerless. There was no insight, no perception, Verse four is about the authority of where's the basis of all that he's saying. He says, whose spirit or or better, whose breath was expressed through you? This may be a subtle way of talking about, is this satanic, the stuff that you're giving me? Who's muttering in your ear here? Where did you get this stuff? Who stood by your side? Because everything that has been said to him is entirely too human. And so now Job sets to work Theologically. And what is it that he does? Well, he starts as low as possible in verse five. And he carries all the way to verse 13 to get to the highest of heavens. And what he did does is give a tour de force of all of creation. And he shows this, verse five. The departed spirits tremble. The word there is Rephaim used about mysterious spiritual figures in the Old Testament, sometimes uh, in ancient Near Eastern cosmology. These are are, uh, supernatural creatures, other times talking about demons, other times talking about dead souls. The point that Job is making is that he's starting at the lowest of the low. He says, under the waters and their inhabitants. This is a place completely unexplored by mankind. This is a place unseen and unknown. And as he thinks about what is underneath this seen world, underneath the vast oceans, he then thinks about another place of great mystery in verse 6. Naked is Sheol before him. And Abdon, or destruction, has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Job operating off the basis mainly of general revelation, of what God has taught Job about himself, not only through self-revelation and special revelation, but through this world that he has painted for Job, that Job has been worshiping God in the context of looking at the world that God made for Job to inhabit and to administrate and control. Job has done that, and he has learned how to worship a sovereign God. And he is telling Bildad that God is making these mysterious evil spirits tremble. Four different mentions of the supernatural. Abdon in verse 6, departed spirits in verse 5, Rahab in verse 12, uh, and the fleeing serpent in verse 13. All of them are under the authority of Job's God. The seen and the unseen, unseen, waters and inhabitants, the empty space of the north. The north is the focal point of God's reign, Psalm 48.2. He hangs the earth on nothing, talking about God's creative power in making this universe. And Job is looking at it in a big way. Verse eight, he wraps up the waters in his clouds and the cloud does not burst under them. Job is thinking about the depths of the earth. He's thinking about the unseen spiritual realm. And then he thinks about the surface of the earth. And then he thinks about the construction of the earth, the hanging of the earth in outer space. How does God do that? I don't know. Job doesn't know. Bildad doesn't know. But the point is, is that God does know. You see, he's building a conception of God almost entirely on the basis of what he has observed with his eyes and he has learned in his life of worship. Job didn't have a NASB Bible. He knew God. He had operated on what was likely a patriarchal kind of relationship with God, as in the days of Abraham. And he knew what he knew about God and he knew it well because God had shown himself to Job in a special way. But Job had learned so much by just looking at this world. He saw a circle on the surface of the waters, verse 10, at the boundary of light and darkness. He looks at the horizon, verse 11, the pillars of heaven, likely the mountains seemingly holding up the sky itself, trembling, and all of it amazed at his rebuke. The supernatural forces uh, afraid and trembling before him. The fleeing serpent pierced by his hand. The sea quieted by his power and by his understanding, shattering the goddesses and gods, Leviathan, Satan, and all associated in the word Rahab. What is God doing here? Well, Job has better theology. And though I would have chosen to read you a C.S. Lewis quote to correct Bildad and show you Psalm 8 to tell you that God has endowed the creation with crown and glory and mankind, that's not what Job does. Job does balance differently. Listen to this quote by Sinclair Ferguson. Preachers tend to be emotionally wired to one Or the other emphasis, strong and bold in preaching hell, but weaker in exalting the love of Christ, or favoring the love of Christ, but diluting it by minimizing the reality of hell. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that true biblical balance is found somewhere in the middle. But he continues. In Scripture, however, the true balance is found by the stretching of our understanding and affections in both directions. Do you understand that? What's happening here in Dr. Ferguson's theological brilliance is he's showing us that the love of Christ and the reality of hell are not to be balanced out but explored further in both directions. And in that, balance is found. And I think Job would look at Dr. Ferguson and say, amen, in a Scottish accent, maybe just to make him feel at home. Because that's exactly what Job does in chapter 26. Job shows the bad preacher Bildad that his God is actually too small. And Job has a higher conception of God, a God that he's going to show us in verse 14, we only see the fringes of his ways. This higher conception, this God without edges is the only way to make room for a God with this much compassion. A God who provokes Job to have the boldness to cry to him in agony. A God who must have his way to accomplish redemption and bring about mediation. A God who will provide something beyond Sheol and the pit and destruction. A God who will be able to provide something that looks like resurrection. This is the most important kind of theological balance. Yes, theological balance can require precision and care and even handedness, but sometimes we must realize we have underestimated God's glory and we have. Underestimated his power to save. We haven't gone far enough theologically. We haven't gone deep enough and grand enough to find that balance, stretching our understanding and affections towards heaven as far as they can go. An example one of my middle school daughters wrote a paper about Niagara Falls, and we watched a documentary on Netflix, and we read some books and looked at pictures of how they used to use it for entertainment once they filled a ship with all kinds of animals and sent it over the edge to cheering crowds. I'm telling you, our view of animals has significantly changed since Bible times, even since the 1800s. But that's not the illustration. The illustration is (laughs) the guys on the wire, the high wire man. They did this all the time at Niagara Falls. You're not allowed to do that anymore. And if it was up to me and I was a high wire guy, I would need all four, hands and feet, to get across that thing. But those who do it well and professionally carry a enormous balancing pole. I Googled it up to figure out how it works. It was science y, I still don't understand something about the moment of inertia. Some of you will come and explain it to me afterwards and I will call you a nerd. (laughs) But it comes down to this. The longer the pole, the better for stability. It centers the gravity. And that's what's happening here. Bildad has not gone far enough. And so that's exactly what Job does. In his conception of God's grandeur, He confronts this imprecise and closed theological system and exposes the lack of balance that did this sufferer so much harm. If you want to prepare your people to suffer and if you want to minister to them in their suffering, you must present a God who is far greater than the God that you could even imagine because that's the only God who could imagine salvation. That's the only God who could accomplish redemption. And that has been the strength of Job all along. And even when he overextends his righteousness on occasion and when he thinks more of himself than God, what stabilizes Job throughout is that he knows that God knows more than he does. And as he explores the wonders of creation from the sea to the sea sun, to the moon, to the stars, to the earth, to the mountain, to the skies. Job is heroic here because Job is saying that we have all underestimated God. It is not an error of transcendence. Versus imminence. It's a failure to let go of a limited and human theological framework. Job knows what verse 14 says so powerfully. Behold, listen, check it out. These are the fringes, the edges of his ways, and how faint a word we hear of him. But his mighty thunder, who can understand? Yes, God is mysterious. But nothing is mysterious to God. And Job knows that he's only at the fringes of understanding this God. He's only at the edges, he's at the hem of his holiness, the seam of his sovereignty, the outskirts of divine justice, and the periphery of his compassion. Job has based his case in the God who revealed himself to Job. This is the doctrine of the knowability of God, to think of God as knowable, that he makes himself known, as we heard Dr. MacArthur so eloquently remind us this morning. He has spoken, and he has spoken clearly. And this same God who has told us exactly who he is is not only knowable, but simultaneously incomprehensible, because the incomprehensibility of God, to quote Lethem, is crucial for the whole of theology. It alerts us to our limitations, our finitude, while simultaneously asserting the reality of God's revelation as a faithful testimony to who he is and all that he has done. We must think about God rightly, that he is a God who is immense and ungraspable, but who has revealed himself and made himself known in the works of creation and in the word of his promise. And when we hear Paul pray in Ephesians that they would grasp the ungraspable. That they would know that which is unknowable, the love of God in Christ. All of this is based on the big God of the Old Testament who is not to be underestimated. And Job shows us the way through suffering is to bear it with God's glory in mind. Isaiah forty eighteen: to whom will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? God is not Like a person who can be exhaustively known, we do great dishonor to God when we try to put him in a box. Job never gets the explanation he wants, at least recorded in the pages of this book. And when Calvin preached on Job 26, he recognized this and said it this way, could we do greater dishonor to God than to want to enclose his power in our finite minds? It would be like a man wanting to hold both the sea and the land in his fist or hold it between his two fingers. It's a madness beyond belief. For the heavens and the earth are not as great as the righteousness, the power, the wisdom, and the goodness which are in God. For they are about small indications of who, and what he is. So what do we do with this? I think the way we take Job 25 and 26 and seek out that theological balance is we never undersell and we never underestimate the greatness of our God. And this is what happens when we think about God as great we pray great. Job, throughout the book, has been praying, asking, begging, and beseeching. Job 721, why then, he says to God, do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? Job understood that that sacrifice just didn't seem to do it. And so he has a perplexing dilemma about forgiveness. Job 9.33, there's no umpire, there's no arbiter between us who could lay his hand on both of us. Only someone who thinks great thoughts of God could ever even ask that question. Job recognizes this great goal fixed between man and God and recognizes the need for someone to come between but he's not finished. Job 14, 13, oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath returns to you, that you would set a limit for me and remember me. Job knows that there must be more to his relationship with God than his seemingly sudden and certain and impending death. There's something beyond the grave for Job. How does he think like that? It's because he has a great and glorious God. Job 16, 19, even now behold, my witness is in heaven and my advocate is on high. Job has a kind of certainty on the basis of who God is that God will be his advocate, that there must be some way for him to be made right with God. Job 17, three, lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is it that will be my guarantee? And tore. Job knows there must be a transaction between God and man if he's ever going to be right in God's presence. Job 19, 23, Oh that my words were written down! Oh that they were inscribed in a book! Are you kidding me? There is a book. It's called Job. He's just grasping at these things, and he's thinking about how will this ever come to place. Job twenty three three. Oh that I knew where I might find him, that I might come to his seat. Job longs for access to God. And that's why he can say boldly, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with him on that day. You see, Job's glorious conception of our great God needs to be our conception as well because the resolution of the book of Job found in its very final chapter is not that he gets 10 more kids. 10 more kids does not make up for 10 dead kids. It is not that his riches are restored and multiplied, that he has new servants. God is blessing Job because God loves Job, but that is not the glorious conclusion. Giving him more years on this earth, there would have been more suffering for Job and those who Job loves, because Job would continue to live in a fallen world. Verse 17 of Job 42 gives us the resolution. And Job died. Job died. The most important words to conclude the book of Job is that final line and Job died. His longing for a mediator, sometimes his deep rage and desire to have a face-to-face meeting with God, his pleading for answers, his awareness of the transitory nature of his own existence would all be resolved in the final sentence. Yes, God blessed Job with physical prosperity to demonstrate his commitment to this righteous man, but far, far, far more than that in the final line, all of Job's inquiries were answered and his doubts assaged, his desires fulfilled. Job wanted a mediator to educate his case before God and what he will get. And what we have in full and final revelation is the God-man, a perfect high priest, the ultimate mediator, the arbiter beyond all our expectations, and not just a mediator, an intercessor, a perfect redeemer, the one who will not accept our sacrifices, but become our sacrifice, dying in our place and rising to new life in which we will gloriously share. The end of the story is this. Job meets his God no longer in the whirlwind, but there in his presence forever. The greatness of God fully and finally realized. The only thing that we can give to those who suffer and the only hope we have in a world like this one. Father, thank you for your glorious power. Thank you for your greatness, your presence, awesome, indescribable, transcendent. O sovereign God, the one who meets us in the end to bring meaning to our misery, the one who puts to death, death itself, and shows us, that you've been gloriously present through it all. God, we worship your immensity, your glorious perfection. May the depth to the being of God, which is so far beyond our comprehension, sustain us and drive us to an eternity where all we will do is take in your glory. And it's in the matchless name of Jesus we pray. Amen.